my business partner and I were very honorable in the transaction. We converted it from a flip into a rental and then eventually into an owner finance and eventually disposed of the property. It ended up being a very successful deal. But man, from like 08 to like 2011, it was a really tough deal. It's time for the Creative Real Estate Podcast, your source for out-of-the-box real estate investing strategies brought to you by realbluespruce.com. Welcome back to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam A. Adams. And today we are with Low Hornbuckle, 37 of Dallas, Texas. He's the CEO and founder of Sage Oak Assisted Living and Memory Care. Founded in 2015, Sage Oak isn't just another assisted living company. It, Sage Oaks is the boutique assisted living company. Uh, with five locations in Dallas and a total of 40 beds, Sage Oak provides small, intimate, home settings that allow those who need little extra care to receive the love and dignity that they deserve. More information available at sage thesageoak.com. That's thesageoak.com. Sage Oak also has two ground-up boutique-assisted living memory care developments in Texas and Louisiana, totaling just under 300 beds with an estimated dollar value amount of a little over $45 million. Well, Lo, how are you today? I'm doing really well. How about yourself? Fantastic. I've, uh, you know, I've heard of you. I've known of you for a long, long time. Uh, I've got friends that are friends of yours. Uh, some of them are, live in Dallas and some of them live here uh, near me in the Denver area. And they're also in the assisted living um, industry. Yeah. And... Um, it's it was really good to meet you in I think it was 2018 or tw- was it 2019 that we met in person I think in person it was this it was at Michael Blanc's event Yeah it must have been it 2019 July of of 19 awesome and um and when I met you I was like I really got to get this guy on the podcast some of the things that I really respected and liked a lot about you is you obviously know your industry really well and um you're you're one of those people who just does what you do and you're not trying to flaunt anything. Like what I, what I mean by that is there's a lot of people in the industry who, um, who are more about trying to make people see them as good than, than sure. just awesome people that are just crushing it. But I respected that about you and I wanted to bring you on a couple things that I'm excited to discuss on the podcast today is number one, your first deal is pretty creative and it's pretty interesting and I know there's a lot of lessons in there, but I really like sure. to bring into um, how you're doing assisted living and a little bit of self-storage right now um, on the operation side and what's really making you the most successful. If we can pull out your superpower and allow others to see if they can implement the same, uh, I think that we can help others be more successful in whatever it is that they do, whether they choose assisted living, self-storage, multifamily, or something else. So uh, let me just take us here back to your very, very, very first deal. I think it was 2007, right before the crash. Could you kind of paint that picture for us? Yeah, I was, uh, I was living in, uh, and, and thank you, by the way, uh, for all that. Uh, it, was, it was awesome to finally meet you in person. I feel like I've known you longer, but obviously, you know, the internet will, will do that sometimes where you think you know someone and then you just finally meet them in person. So uh, yeah, it was uh, 2007. I, I'm from a, a town in Louisiana called Shreveport, Louisiana. Um, you know, the locals call it Ratchet City. 
you uh, you go for the gambling, uh, you stay because you got shot. So, you know, I was operating in a very difficult real estate market in Shreveport. Uh, you know, very inexpensive. You know, it was kind of, it, in terms of a big market that it might look similar to maybe Memphis, right? So low price point, sort of high theoretical cash flow. Tenant base can sometimes be a little little challenging. I'd say the advantage like a Memphis would have is it's got more substantial industry. But in terms of just how the market looks, Shreveport, Memphis, fairly similar. What so, do you mean by, sorry to cut you off, what do you mean by theoretical cash flow? I think uh, we'd like to dive into that before we get in. <laughs> To the next well, part. skipping forward a bit, uh, one of the worst mistakes I ever made in real estate was getting into low-income housing. Um, and I say theoretical because, you know, if you're charging $600 a month in rent and then your turnover for a unit, say $3,000, which is pretty easy to do, then you've just erased, um, you know, obviously a half a year's, you know, or five months, six months of rent. So, uh, you know, kind of what I learned about uh, low-income housing really was basically, Two things. One, um, you know, an air conditioner or, you know, drywall costs the same if someone's renting $1,500 a month, $1,000 a month, or $500 a month. You might as well have a higher revenue to offset uh, those repair expenses. And the second thing was is that you really should get into an asset class you know and understand. So what I like about assisted living for me is that, you know, while I'm not elderly and I'm not a baby boomer, you know, I'm not as old as some of my clients, you know, socioeconomically, I think we can kind of see each other as peers, right? So like, you know, we're driving the same type of car. We live in the same parts of Dallas. And so we just sort of, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a, a sort of a, almost like a cultural sort of language uh, sort of agreeance there. And uh, when I did low-income housing, uh, sometimes my best intentions to communicate either were ineffective or um, I, I struggle with certain things. Like, I, you know, I don't necessarily want to, um, necessarily be a landlord for somebody that's got, you know, five or six adults living in a, in a two bedroom house or something like that. And uh, it was hard. It was a difficult process. And what I kind of learned was, is that, you know, it's just best to invest in things that you understand. Um, you know, obviously that wasn't my first deal. Um, but um, that was kind of a lesson that I took away from that. And, uh, you know, I had to kind of go through the pain of realizing that if you don't understand something at its core, then you can kind of put yourself in a position where you're likely not going to be successful unless you can learn it and then you love it. And I just never really did love doing low-income housing. It just wasn't something I loved. Um, so back to the first deal, uh, you know, so I, I, in 2007, I uh, bought, a, bought a house with a business partner, and I'd been friends with the guy for a couple of years, and he was a really solid guy, and I vetted him out as well as I could. Uh, through mutual friends had done business together. He was a local business owner, had a good reputation. And our intention was to flip it. So put the house in my name. He did the rehab money. We're going to put some money in and flip it. Well, we put it on the market in 2008. I don't know if you know of anything that happened in 2008 to housing, but uh, suffice it to say the house didn't sell. And uh, so we found ourselves basically, I was flipping my first house into the greatest housing recession of probably multiple generations. So that was fun. Um, what I learned about that was, is that, you know, some of the best things that ever happened to a business partnership is your first deal be a bad one um, because it tests the partnership, right? So um, what I noticed was that my partner nor I sort of cut tail and run. It'd be very easy to walk away from the deal. It'd be very easy to have that happen. And so you see all these people that do two or three or four successful deals and a bad one comes. And uh, what happens? Well, you know, you don't know where someone's ethics are. You don't know where their honor lies. You don't know, you know, are they the type of person? Are they willing to forego some personal uh, luxuries to keep the deal afloat? And both my business partner and I were very honorable in the transaction. We converted it from a flip into a rental and then eventually into an owner finance and eventually disposed of the property. It ended up being a very successful deal. But man, from like 08 to like 
2011, it was a really tough deal. And, uh, you know, it was a bleeder, you know, we were losing a little bit of money every month and we had money tied up into it and things like that. So, um, you know, really what I take from that is, is just, you know, find out who people are in tough times, you know, so if you're going to do business with a partner, find out a time in which they had something bad happen and how they responded. You know, that's one of the best things you can find out. Cause if someone's honorable when times are bad, they're obviously gonna be honorable when times are good. Everybody's, you know, so smart and everyone's so ethical when times are good. And then when they get tested, that's when you kind of find out what their culture is. That's true of companies as well. You know, we talk about that all the time in assisted living. It's like, Hey, here's a list of references. And when you call them, ask them about a time that we messed something up and how we responded because we're going to make mistakes. And it's better for you to see what our culture is. And you're going to find out our culture when we make a mistake and how we respond to that mistake. Are we accountable? Are we apologetic? Do we fix it? And do we prevent it in the future? So that was really the big lesson from that. That deal was basically, um, you know, make sure you have a good handle on who your partner is. And sort of the last piece is I'm just really bad at flipping things. You know what I figured out is I didn't have any kids at the time. I still don't have any kids. I was single and had no kids. And I'm flipping this house that's designed for people that are supposed to have kids and a family. And, uh, so like I'm doing things as though, so I wasn't really asking myself, like, what would my end buyer want? And I had to kind of screw that deal up to start taking a step back and going, just cause stylistically, I like this, you know, I've, I'm in a, I like a bachelor and, you know, I need to think about what my end buyer is going to look like. And so I, those seem like really obvious things, but sometimes you have to screw those up to really, really know them. And, uh, so those are kind of lessons I took from that, that first single family deal. During that deal, and thank you for going into that, I want to find out a little bit more about how you disposed of it through seller carry. Um, if you wouldn't mind going into those details, how'd you find the buyer? Um, how did you hold the note? Those types of things. Yeah, so in our case, um, we actually, Louisiana is actually uh, is pretty aggressive in what they allow you to do on a rent-to-own basis. So because we didn't want to transfer the title, we were kind of concerned about that. I think our third tenant, yeah, it was our third tenant, wanted to buy the house, but didn't have a sufficient down payment for us to consider doing owner finance. So we did a rent to own and uh, they put some money up front. That was option money. We gave them like 10 years to buy the house. It was like a really aggressive timeline, but their payment was really, really high. So if market rents were like, say $1,400 in the house, they were paying like 2,300 and like a really high percentage of that money was getting credited toward the purchase. And so they ended up they kept the house for like four or five years and then they were always trying to do handy projects. They're always improving it or, you know, they were starting something and not finishing. So they eventually defaulted and kind of called us up and said, look, we can't keep up anymore. I'm like, well, you know, you, you can just keep paying the payment and try to sell it. And then, you know, we'll, we'll do a double closing and you'll keep your equity. And they just really didn't put much of an effort to sell it. So we ended up, you know, getting the house back. They'd paid an incredible amount of money for the house over the four or five years. And then we just sort of, you know, basically put it out on the market and sold it to uh, an investor or a wholesaler for kind of a, maybe like a wholesale strategy. So it was kind of in between retail and between wholesale, just so we didn't have to put any money into it and fix it up. And I was also kind of scared too, because um, once you have problems with a house, um, you know, in some markets, you know, in, in Dallas, for example, if you made a mistake in 2011 and you showed up in 2016, 2017 to try to sell this property, it's probably doubled or tripled in value. So the market lift really protected you. Um, anything you held for a long time, you're rewarded. In Louisiana and Shreveport in particular, the only money you made was on your amortization, paying down your, your debt, right? You're just basically creating a big, bigger cash flow event at the end. So fortunately with them, because we were paying all the extra money they were paying us to principal, it created a big spread. 
And we were able to, you know, have at least a positive financial event happen from a deal that ultimately started badly. So it was just being creative. It was just, you know, listening to what these people needed. You know, they were entrepreneurs. They owned a bell bonds business, the tenants, and they had heavy cash at the time, but very poor credit or, you know, substandard credit to get a mortgage anyway. Uh, and uh, we were able to kind of come up with a proposal we thought was mutually beneficial. I'm disappointed they weren't able to buy the house. I mean, I, I wanted them to, but we tried to give them every option and every ability to uh, to do so. Uh, but, you know, if for whatever reason, their circumstances wouldn't allow it. And, and uh, you know, we kind of took over the house after, after many years of them uh, paying quite a bit for it. So you bought it in 07, um, and it was rough through around 11. If you could help me understand, just uh, or remind me if you already told me, what year was it that you got it wholetailed off to the investor? I want to say probably 2012 or 2013, maybe. Okay. So, so just, a, just a couple of years after. Yeah, so we probably it rented it from like 08 to like 2010, and then from 2010 to like 2013 or so was kind of the um, was kind of the rent to own strategy that we employed. Good deal, good deal. And right now, when we were during the pre-interview, you talked a little bit about how one of your superpowers is to is operations, is to see what people are doing and what people are missing, and increase revenue. Um, you gave a couple of examples of how you've done that in the past and how you're doing it right now. So if you could help us learn a couple of lessons on what we can do better with our own operations and how we can look for things like that, that other people might be missing. Well, yeah, I think the first thing is, is that, you know, I know obviously the space that you, you know, spend a lot of your time in is kind of the multifamily space. And a lot of the multifamily deals that I see anyway have, you know, kind of a, uh, a grouping of people, right? So you'll have maybe three or four people that are jointly sponsoring the deal and they have various responsibilities. The first thing I would say is always have someone that's good at sales on the team. Because if you have a person on the team that could literally sit down with a prospect on an apartment and take them on a tour and ask the right questions and, and, and figure out, you know, and then even little stuff like if you lose a deal that will follow up and go, hey, I know you chose a different place. Where did you choose? Awesome. And, and, and why did you choose that place? That information is so valuable. And most people don't ask those questions, but salespeople do because what they realize is they want to know every deal they lost. They want to know why. And then they go, okay, well, is it something I can fix? I can't fix the location. I can't necessarily fix the price maybe because that's might be set by somebody else. But if it's, if it's, I didn't show something or there's an amenity that I didn't show, or if I didn't use the right language, or we have some program, you know, we have some special uh, bonded programming up to a security deposit. If I didn't explain that well enough and I lost a deal because of that, then I need to own that and get better. So I think it's important to have somebody on the team that just fundamentally understands how to take someone through the sales cycle, understands how to follow up, understands something as simple as, you know, if you're trying to get a hold of somebody, you know, I've met a lot of non-salespeople, they'll leave a voicemail for somebody and then they're like, okay, I've called them. The ball is in their court now. I have to wait for them to call me back. And as a sales guy, I, I, I call them, I leave a voicemail, I shoot them a text and I email them because I don't know what form of communication is preferred for them. And so if I do all three and they don't call me back, then that tells me something. Uh, if I do one, then maybe they're just not very good about checking their voicemail and I've missed an opportunity. So sales will just sort of internally get a lot of that stuff. And so I think it's always good to have somebody that's been on the front lines and has sold something, whatever that is, and then try to extrapolate that experience into operations. Because the truth is, 
there's almost no real estate class. There's not, there's no a class of real estate rather. There's almost no class of real estate that doesn't involve some level of sales. I mean, you could maybe argue that a triple net lease, you know, once you get somebody in there, you don't really do anything for 10 years, but you know, apartments, if you can interface with the property management company, if you're not self-managing, if you can interface with them and help them get better, then you're going to be happier for it. Self-storage, it's kind of low operations, but still there's an element of operations to self-storage. You know, one of the things we're doing with, with uh, state storage group is we're simply surveying our existing clients. Uh, and the idea is this, you ever heard of a gas station called Bucky's? It's kind of big here in the South. I don't know if you've heard of it. I happen to have heard of it when I was okay. in Boston. A gentleman came in, I think, from Houston or Dallas, and I sat down with him, and I've, I've never heard somebody speak so highly of a, a, a convenience store in my life. It's incredibly overrated. It's basically like a small Walmart on the side of a highway. It's just – that's what it is. And uh, But one of the things they marketed to was they basically said, hey, we have the cleanest bathrooms. And so they decided like, okay, if you're, and they don't allow, it's like a truck stop. They don't allow trucks. So there's no truckers. So it's like a truck stop, no truckers. So it's like you have all the benefits of a truck stop, but you have none of the necessary stigma and stuff that comes with, you know, people that are on the road all the time, nothing against truckers. I'm just saying that's their business model. So one of their marketing strategies was basically we have the cleanest bathrooms. So my theory is, is you're driving down the side of the road and you're trying to choose and they've created this sort of cultural phenomenon and it'll keep expanding and it's a very successful company. But if you're driving down the side of the road and, you know, a lot of times women in particular care a lot about the bathrooms because men, you know, half the time we can do the whole thing standing up, right? So, but women got to sit down every time. So they want a really clean bathroom. So if you're in the car with your wife, she says, Hey, they got the cleanest bathrooms. Let's stop there. It's a magnet, right? So my thought with the state storage group was basically what if, our clients choose us for a reason we don't understand, similar to Bucky's in the bathroom. So we're in the process now of kind of surveying those clients. You know, what if they just say to us, you know, I chose you because you have the cleanest site I've ever seen. And we have 40% of our clients tell us that. Well, then what that tells us is, is that the site plays a bigger role in that. And maybe our value proposition is we have the cleanest site in town. Um, and that's just an example. So you know, one of the things I don't think people really do a whole lot of is they don't really ask their current clients why they're clients. And so in storage, that's kind of an interesting thing to do because it's so simple, right? Like, do, did you choose this because we have access control? Did you choose this because we have a person on site? Did you choose this because we have cameras? Did you choose this because our blacktop's always clean and never has cracks? So these are things I wanted to kind of understand. So I've just started working with them in the last couple of months. And so we're in the process now of kind of getting that data. And, uh, you know, if you think about the power of marketing, is Red Bull really the most delicious way to get caffeine? Probably not. But they built an entire, they basically built a company around a brand and a product that's inferior. You don't have to have the best product. You just have to tell the best story. That's really what marketing is all about. If you happen to have the best story and the best product, then it's really easy. And so that's what I've kind of done with Sejo because kind of I tell the best story and have the best product. But um, in something like uh, in storage, I just kind of want to understand, you know, why do people choose us? And when I understand that, I can build a story around that, and then I can market that to prospective clients. So that's kind of an example. So those are some kind of pieces of wisdom that I've kind of just picked up over the years. I, I always thought of myself as a salesperson when I, I worked at a car dealership for a really long time, and I never was responsible for bringing anybody in, right? So people just came to see me, and then my job was to, you know, Basically, marketing is get the clients in to make the phone ring, have them come by and see you. Sales is converting those leads into revenue. I was always a salesperson, but what I kind of found out is I actually really kind of enjoy marketing too. I really enjoy kind of getting into relationships with people and figuring out a way to have them, uh, you know, 
put the company that I'm working with at the top of their list. And I think anyone that's ever been a business has experienced, there's someone that'll send you a referral and they're real hands off. Like I'm not vouching for them, go see them, but I don't know, you know, they're just like, they almost like offer 50 disclaimers. And then you have someone that's like, Hey, you need to go to this restaurant. It's amazing. Ask for Phil, order these things, tell him you want them the same way and did them for me. He'll take care of you. Like they're, they're actually advocates for the business. They're passionate about their referral. They want you to agree with them. And so I've spent a lot of time trying to understand how do I take people and make them like that, as opposed to just here's his name and number, hope you call him. And a lot of it's just been getting in relationships with people that I can honestly say to them, like, dude, don't give them my name and number, give me theirs because I'll actually call them and we don't want apathy to set in and then them not take the next step, which happens a lot, right? Like how many times does your business get referred and the phone doesn't ring? But if you give me their name and number, I'm going to reach out and the chips are going to fall where they may. And that's all I can ask for. Yeah. Good deal. So one of the things that you mentioned with, um, within your Sage Oak and working with some of your clients, you've asked them why they have chosen you. Is it the blacktop? Is it the whatever, the location, the cleanliness? And you mentioned that you got some feedback. Did you create um, a story then around that, that you've been using lately? And can you share that with us? Yeah. So um, with Sage Oak, um, so Sage Oak is the assisted living company that I own and operate. The 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 story about you know the the survey really dealt with uh, the uh, storage group that I'm working. Oh, okay. But so Sage Oak, yeah. So Sage Oak really has two kind of key things. And what I did was, um, you ever heard of like BNI, right? Like it's a group of professionals, and you have like specific slots. There's a bunch of BNI type meetings where you know twenty, thirty, forty, sometimes a hundred people get together. They do a little 30-second commercial about what they do, and then you network, and you try to find synergy. When I first got into assisted living, before my properties were open, I spent a lot of time going to these meetings. I don't really go to them anymore. I don't really – I just can't get a ton of value out of the time from them. But the value that I got out of going to those meetings initially is to distill something like your business into 30 seconds is really, really hard, especially if you want to talk – you know, like you want to explain it. So I'm talking about assisted living. When I say assisted living, people think of something already, right? So if I say assisted living, something comes into your mind, it may not be what I'm doing. You may think of a nursing home. You may think of retirement community. You probably don't think about a house with eight people. You think about something different. So I had to figure out how do I convey my concept in a way that sticks because then they're going to hear 20 of these commercials. And what I discovered was one day, so what I would do is I would just, I would try an explanation a few times. And then, I, and then when I'd be in a marketing event or something, they'd say, oh, this is low. Uh, you know, I should introduce you. And, and I'd say, well, do me a favor. Why don't you tell them what I do? And I would just listen to what they said. Because if they heard me do the commercial 10 times and they can't really adequately explain what I did, I'm saying it wrong. And so what really came out of that was the phrase boutique. Um, boutique seemed to work really well when attached to assisted living or when attached to memory care. So that was kind of the first thing was kind of learning that boutique was a word that meant something to people. They, they knew it meant small, they knew it meant intimate. If I say we're, I say, we're going to stay at a boutique hotel. What do you think of? Exactly. Matt. Yeah. Yeah. Just so, a small quaint. Yeah. You think about like a nice experience, yeah. a small mom you, and pop. They, small, everybody knows their, your name and yeah. Exactly. And so if I do that in assisted living, it, it, it sort of it piggybacks off of that concept. Yeah. And so the other thing was, is that um, the biggest challenge I see in healthcare, uh, and this is from an outsider's perspective, is communication. It's the number one thing. Uh, you know, if you, 
if, if a doctor has to deliver bad news to you and they do it well, it softens the blow. If, uh, you know, if you have to, if you can be proactive in your communication. So as an example, a lot of my team comes from the healthcare industry and, you know, in healthcare communication is pretty poor, right? You go to see a doctor, they send you to a waiting room, you wait there for 45 minutes. If you're an aggressive type A person, you get up and you go, Hey, uh, did y'all forget about me? You know, that people do that, right? So our whole job is we're dealing with people that have complex, you know, sometimes diseases like dementia. They've got, you know, four or five family members that are involved in the process. So how can we communicate better? And so what I, uh, what I did was I started distilled our slogan into, into six words. Great care, great food, great communication. Uh, to this day, I have not seen an assisted living or memory care company talk about communication in their slogan. And we've made it a central part of what we do. We actually trademarked, I should probably say that on the, on the show. We've actually trademarked boutique assisted living and memory care. We've also trademarked great care, great food, and great communication. And the reason we've done that is because it's just, I spent two days throwing a ball against a wall, trying to think like, how do I distill what we do into really small pieces? And if I tell you that a company does great care, great food, great communication, you get what that company's about, I think. And, uh, the way I did that was I was having to design a flyer. And if you've ever tried to design a flyer, like a little half page or quarter page, it's really hard because you instinctively, you want to list all the things you have. You want to list all these features, but if you look at it on paper, it's like, it's just a list of stuff and it doesn't resonate. Nobody remembers it. So if you've got an 80 year old person looking for their spouse and you have a little half page ad somewhere and it's just got a list of 30 things, they're not going to call you. But if it's like, Boutique assisted living, great care, great food, great communication. Here's our locations. They call or they're more likely to call. And uh, so that was kind of the fun part of that process. Sometimes it's really, really difficult to distill things down into small concepts. And, you know, what I've told everybody is, is that, you know, any business that you're in, you can be a commodity, but you can choose not to be. So um, every apartment complex just about has something unique about it. And if you can figure out that there's something unique about it that people care about, you can build a story around that. You know, we have the best views in Denver. That's a great story, right? The largest swimming pool in all of Denver. That's cool, right? So what doesn't matter? It could be anything really, really small, but it's something different. It's some value claim that someone else isn't making. You know, we're the highest rated apartment complex in the entire Denver metro area on Apartment Finder. Great. Anything. So you can all, and assisted living is even worse because you're dealing with um, some very serious issues, right? So people choose apartments a lot of times based on location, based on pricing. Assisted living, they're focused on care, food, and communication. And so if you can really make clear that you're not a commodity, that there's unique things about your business in terms of personnel, in terms of culture, then you can essentially just not be competitive because the people that you're competing with don't get it. And they're talking about gyms and chandeliers and underwater treadmills and things that don't really matter when you're trying to take care of someone with dementia, right? So the, the, a lot of the big players in the space don't really fundamentally understand what they're doing or they know that they can't deliver uh, on the healthcare piece. They can't deliver on the service piece. They can't deliver on the communication piece. So they kind of, you know, play a game of three card money and they say, Oh, well, look at the chandelier. It's beautiful. It's a, you know how many crystals that is. And you're like, I care about mom or dad being happy, not the chandelier. And that's kind of how they operate sometimes. So that's just kind of an example of how you can kind of take your business and just separate it from, from the pack by just really distilling some ideas into sort of short sentences or short phrasing. That was very valuable. Thank you. I appreciate you going into that. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with the final five. 
Do you have a website that gives you credibility and captures leads? ApartmentInvestorPro.com can help you get a professional website today. Can you build your investor list without a website? Sure, just like you can cut down a tree with a pocket knife, but why would you when you could use a chainsaw? Typically, building a professional website can be a real pain, taking thousands of dollars and months of your time. One syndicator said it took him 10 months on his own. Another had to go to three different companies before getting something usable. ApartmentInvestorPro.com makes it quick and painless. All the designs and content is already created. With 15 years of experience building websites for investors, ApartmentInvestorPro.com gives you peace of mind and lets you focus your time on finding deals and investors. These powerful websites capture contact information from your potential investors. You can even automate the follow-up process. No more letting good investor leads fall through the cracks. Save 10% on your website by going to apartmentinvestorpro.com and using promo code CREATIVE. That link is in today's show notes. Low Hornbuckle, what's the most creative deal you've ever done? Definitely the first assisted living facility I did. Very creative, worked out to be, we designed what I think was the best uh, care home in Dallas in our first tries. That was very cool. Awesome. What's a book that you recommend? I just got done reading a book called Factfulness. And uh, it's fantastic because um, it tries to bridge the political divide and just basically say, here are the facts and here's the direction the world's going in and here's the data. You can argue all you want about what you want the world to be, but here's the data. So it's written by a doctor that is involved in world health and it was fantastic. I think a lot of people are going to be going and buying this book right now. That's cool. I'm, I want to buy it and I want to read it. Uh, where were you five years ago? Just kind of paint me a quick picture of what it looked like five years ago. Five years ago, I was just moving from Shreveport, Louisiana to Dallas. No job. Had just gotten married. Had just adopted a dog, and my dad had just passed away. So I pretty much had every life event you could ever have happen in the span of a week. That's actually a true story. All that happened in a week. Wow. And, yeah, so I just – I think about that and – you know, you know, no job and everything else with the dog and the father. And I'm really sorry to hear that. And just five years today, here you are with 300 beds focusing on self-storage um, as well as assisted living. And you're passively invested in several uh, multifamily syndications. That's, that's really amazing to think that any one of us who, if we're just starting out, whether we have a job or not, whether, you know, something, some big life events happen in, in five years, we could really be somewhere special. Where will you plan, excuse me, where will you plan to be five years from now? What does that look like? Yeah, I mean, I think five years from now will look a lot like it does now, except for the fact that, you know, probably I'll have probably about, you know, 500 more beds under under construction or in some various phase of development. So I'd really like to be, you know, close to seven, 800 beds and, and really just kind of being a regional player in uh, Texas and Louisiana. And we're very focused on, you know, staying close together and not trying to build some big national company, but building a very strong regional company. How do you give back? The cool thing about what I do is I get to actually combine uh, making money with giving back. So um, the number of times that I hear people that come from just horrible situations, mom fell, she was on the ground for seven hours, nobody found her, uh, you know, or you know, the caregivers aren't paying attention to them or they're not feeding them. So the cool thing about what I've got to do is I get to help a lot of people and feel really good about what I do. And also they, they pay me for that. And it's just, it's fantastic. So I kind of live... Uh, sort of service capitalism, right? So we do good 
and uh, you know, we make money in the process. For the listeners who want to find you or get a hold of you, what's the very best way for them to do that? Yeah, so um, our website, thesageoak.com, so T-H-E-S-A-G-E-O-A-K.com. If you can go there, you can uh, uh, reach out for any reason. You know, and I want to make clear, some people call me to say, hey, my mom is needing a place in Kentucky. I'll try to help find your provider there. Um, some people want to learn about investing in senior housing, and other people want to learn how to get started. Happy to point them in the right direction on any of those. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really, really appreciate your time. I learned a lot from how you can really look at the operations and improve them. So thank you. I, I think that that was valuable for all of us. I'm going to let you go, but until next time, my friend, think outside the box. Thanks for listening to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. If you got value out of today's episode, we'd really appreciate it if you take the time to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. Until next time, think outside the box.